Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. Too right you are. <laughs> Do you want to at least tell them your name? Yeah, all right. Um, I'm Kev. <laughs> <laughs> well, hello, everyone. We are at the start of a new clash this week. And actually, we know we've been a bit scattergun in our approach to uh, identifying clashes o- over the last few shows. So we're going to try and actually group things together thematically. So give you guys a bit of consistency and uh, have a bit of fun with it. So, Kev. What theme are we looking at over the next few clashes? Beef. That is our theme. So rivalries. Where's the beef? I'll tell you where the beef is. Right here. (laughs) Prime grade A beef. We are prime beef over the next few clashes here. None of your choice cuts. Prime. So the the clash that that we're going through will be the Beach Boys seminal pet sounds versus... The iconic Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles. And it just so happens that today is a Global Beatles Day, apparently. Oh, well, there you go. I didn't know such a thing existed. Excellent stuff. Neither did I until I looked at Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> there was something of a rivalry between the Fab Four and the American ones. <laughs> the, Sandy, the Sandy Four? Yeah, that'll do. The San- yeah, although there wasn't the five of them. Yeah, I suppose so. And my, although Mike loves a massive prick. Uh, we're going to go into that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go through Can't Get You Out of My Head. So um, as always, Kev, what shite have you had stuck in your head for the last couple of weeks? Um, so in this country, uh, today we're recording on the 25th of June. Our health secretary ha- has been caught in flagrante, allegedly. Well, it's not allegedly, is it? There's fucking CCTV footage. Okay. So on the ba- on the basis of that, there's been various sorts of memes and and bits knocking about, and the shite song that I've not been able to get out of my head for the last couple of hours is uh, Shaggy's hit "It Wasn't Me," thanks to some of the many videos that have been knocking about. <laughs> yeah, oh, what a dreadful song that is, though. <laughs> <laughs> it is terrible. So my shite. And I'd love to say that, that this has only been stuck in my head for the last hour or two, but it's been stuck in my head for fucking ages. So there is a place in the UK called Blackpool Pleasure Beach, and it's a fairground, basically. And at Blackpool Pleasure Beach, there are various roller coasters, including some exciting ones. One, in fact, called the Pepsi Max Big One, or it was called the Pepsi Max Big One last time I went. Anyway, a few weeks back, a number of rides broke down at the Blackpool Pleasure Beach, including the Pepsi Max big one. And people had to basically walk down the biggest slope, basically, and could be rescued because it, it broke down right at the top of the, just before it was going to go down. <laughs> now, people may remember, and if you don't remember, I'm sorry for putting it back in your mind now, the um, song Fairground by Simply Red. You prick. <laughs> if I have that song stuck in my head, I'm going to come down to your house and murder you. <laughs> Which would be fair enough. It's more than fair enough. 
the, the thing is what I've not got to what got me that stuck in my head. It, it wasn't just the big one connections. The, as I said, the video to Fairground was filmed on the big one. And I just thought, why couldn't that have happened when fucking Mick Hucknall was on the ride? Why couldn't his shitty, massive ginger dreads got stuck in the gears? <laughs> 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 That's what got a song stuck in my head. Oh, I fucking hate that song. Oh, d- dreadful. Dreadful, man. So already just the sheer mention of it has got it into my head. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. Everything about it. The existence of Mick <laughs> being right at the top. Absolute prick. <laughs> Me or him? Both. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> right, moving on. What about good stuff? What do you want to give a tip of the hat to? So we are kind of there there are several sorts of classic things that we're we're doing over the course of this clash, in, including um video kill the radio star is also is also quite the classic. So the thing that I've not been able to get out of my head is an absolute belter and a classic unfinished sympathy by Massive Attack, which is just a belter of a song. I don't really have much much more to say apart from it's just so, so good. If you've never heard it, check it out because it's brilliant. It is brilliant. So it's from their debut album, Blue Lines, which came out, I'm going to say 1991. Yeah, that sounds about right. I love Massive Attack. We'll be doing Blue Lines at some point. Great song. Really good choice. And like I said, you don't need to say much about it, do you really? No, it's a classic. It's just, it's a belter. So mine is much newer. It is a song called Those Words by a band I've liked for quite a while now, an Atlanta band called Mateel, uh, who are fronted by uh, their lead singer, Mateel Brown, who has a really distinctive voice. So this it was it's their latest single. It was released back in, in April of this year. Now, the reason, well, I like Mateel anyway, but the reason I wanted to give a tip of the hat to it in particular is if you've not heard them, their usual sound is, well, I would describe them as the Black Angels with Nico as their lead vocalist. Okay, you've basically, you know how to pique my interest. Referencing the Black Angels, a band that I absolutely adore, and then you've um, previously brought Nico to the party before as well. You've got me on the hook, so reel me in now. So the new single, those words, is a very different sound for them. It's, I mean, it's still got the, the, the psychedelic sort of sound, but it's very shoegaze, and that is a good thing. Psychedelic shoegaze? It, like a psychedelic band going shoegaze, all kinds of good. Okay, you cannot see my face at the minute, but imagine a, a large ginger man with a huge grin on his face. That, it, that is what's going on at the minute, because that is two thumbs, <laughs> two thumbs good. Highly recommended those words by Mateel. Okay, that sounds great. So um, I will definitely be checking that out. All right, so we're going to introduce a slightly different section now because we've realised over what are we now? 14, 16 episodes in, something like that. There's not much clash going on on this show. No, it's it's more album chat with a little clash. A Susana clash, if you like. Exactly. So we're not going to fundamentally change the structure of the show, but we do want to introduce a little bit more clash where we can. Now, as we do usually at the end of going through each album, we do the legacy section, which has got the reviews, the sales, all that stuff. And we'll still do some of that. But I think what we can do is put each album 
against the other, head-to-head in a round of the facts. And I'm going to call that round the top trumps round. The plan is to is to play is to play our stats akin to the the game top trumps. Exactly. Now, people in the UK will know exactly what I'm talking about. People in America might not, but you'll figure it out. I'm not going to explain top trumps. Just Google it, as we always say. I th- I'm pretty sure they have. To- they have. To- I'm sure they have top trumps in America. They must have top trumps in America. And if you've not, you're missing out because top trumps is boss. <laughs> Waddington's finest. Hey, so Waddington's no longer owns Top Trumps and it's nowhere near as good anymore because it's all sorts of bollocks made up things rather than actual facts. That's what I want. (laughs) Top Trumps was good when I was competing against my friends for what was the heaviest locomotive. (laughs) (laughs) Or or which, uh, which figure had the best necromancy skills. No, you see, I don't like that. Because that's just nonsense made up stuff. No, no. I want actual verifiable facts. I don't want made up stuff that's from fiction and fantasy. No, that's not top trumps. That's just, I don't play Dungeons and Dragons to find out which aeroplane had the longest wingspan and what could go to Mach 3.4. Similarly, I don't play fucking top trumps to find out which wizard can cast the most endearing spell. No. Separate those things, please. Never played Dungeons and Dragons. I've no the idea most endearing. <laughs> I've, no, I've no idea. I've never played Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, isn't that a cute little spell that he's just cast? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wizards can do nice things too. I suppose so. <laughs> we, we may have digressed off the subject somewhat. Slightly. What we're going to do, as Kev said, we're going to pit the stats for each album against each other. So, your choice, Kev. For each stat, I'm going to let you go first. I'll read the name of the stat. You give me your numbers. Okay. First off, in terms of where these albums charted, where did Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band peak in the US album charts? Number one. Thank you very much. Ooh. Pet Sounds, number 10. Sgt. Pepper's wins that one. Okay. Now give me your UK album chart number, please. Number one. Oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) Pet Sounds, number two. 1960s record by Public. sort yourselves out. I mean, in the US, number 10, piss off. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now I'm going to... So from charts, I'm going to take us on to certifications. So this is whether it's received any gold records, platinum, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, Kev... In the US, has Sergeant Peppers received any certifications? It has indeed. It went 11 times platinum. Well, Pet Sounds went platinum in the US as well, which is really good. But only once. <laughs> yeah, you get, you get an absolutely so, jibbed here. <laughs> yeah, Pet Sounds is not doing well. <laughs> what about the UK? How did Sergeant Peppers do in terms of certifications in the UK? Um, it, it did go platinum 18 times. I mean, the ratio is better. So it, uh, Pet Sounds went twice platinum in the UK. So that's only nine times we are getting better. But still, I would think it's fair to say Sandra Peppers has absolutely trounced Pet Sounds on that one. I mean, if this was a proper game of top trumps, I am running out of cards fast. Okay, well, should we? Can you at least win one? Give us your best, your best one, man. My best. All right. Okay. Here's my best one. Here's my best one. Pet Sounds was voted the greatest album of all time by the NME and the Times in 1993 and Mojo in 1995. It was also voted number two of all time 
by Rolling Stone in 2003, 2012, and 2020. What can you do on that? I do have accolades, similar. However, the most recent, the most recent Rolling Stone greatest albums of all time, you were number two. I am merely number 24. Well, there you go. So I, I, so surely I've won this one then. Well, well, yes, clearly, because in terms of accolades, it was voted the greatest of all time by the Rolling Stone in 2003 and 2012, HMV and Channel 4 in 98, and Q Magazine in 2004. So it's dropped in eight years. One to 24. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas Pet Sounds has at least retained. It's not caught to the best, but at least it's, yeah, you're still number two. So... That doesn't make any sense. Basically, what we can what we can assess from that is these lists have no fucking merit whatsoever, <laughs> largely. Yeah. Don't pay any attention to subjective comparisons apart from this podcast, which is the definitive word on what is good and what is bad, obviously. Yeah, every everyone else's opinion is wrong. Ours is sound. Okay, so if we're going on the most recent rating, I've won that one for Pet Sounds. Great. I'm feeling yeah, I'm feeling more confident now. So let's go, let's go to sales. How many copies has Sergeant Pepper sold worldwide, please, Kevin? I think you've gone with the wrong category. Really? Given like I absolutely nailed you on on the platinums. Oh shit, yeah. <laughs> we're talking approximately 32 million copies. I've been done here. You've absolutely screwed yourself. That was an error, damn. <laughs> so Pet Sounds, not quite as many. Although it does start with a three. Yeah, it's about three million. Although what I have to say is that is an estimated figure. There are no official figures for the total number of copies that Pet Sounds has sold, basically due to shit record keeping in Columbia Records. There's <laughs> no other reason than that. So, I mean, who knows? Pet Sounds may have sold 100 million copies. It may be the biggest selling album ever. In fact, I'm going to assume it is. So I'm going to claim that morally. <laughs> okay, I will pitch um, awards. So... Grammys. Oh, I wish you'd not chosen that. <laughs> Four, including album of the year in 1968. Yeah. Can we move on? <laughs> Pet Sounds didn't win any awards. <laughs> I'd like, I know you, I bet you're like really hoping I went with critics because critics absolutely adore this album. So let's do critic scores then. It's the last category we got. Do you mind if I go first? Because I think I'm a strong contender here. No, go on. Okay. So all music. Gave Pet Sounds five stars out of five. Rolling Stone, five stars out of five. Pitchfork, 9.4 out of 10. Give me your best shot. Rolling Stone, five out of five. All Music, five out of five. Pitchfork, 10 out of 10. Oh, fucking hell. I've been absolutely obliterated here. So what? I've won one out of six categories. Mugged off by Thomas. (laughs) And the theme from points of view. (laughs) Well, there you go. I mean, we're going to get into that, but that is harsh considering how influential both these albums are. That is harsh. That's brutal on pet sounds. Yeah, I, I, I agree. But... It didn't do. It's it alienated their market really, it's, and it's only sort of subsequently that it became 
revered for for what for what it was. Exactly. Okay. On that note, shall we start going through pet sounds? Yeah. So so what I'll what I'll do briefly is I'll just kind of talk about the links between the two. So Brian Wilson admits himself that uh, the Beatles album Rubber Soul was hugely influential on him. And Rubber Souls and the Beatles albums after that are game changers, really. Before that, albums were essentially just a collection of singles and fillers. The single was king. Rubber Soul was the first time, or certainly within the pop genre, there was actually an attempt to kind of put together a coherent collection of music. And because Rubber Soul existed, Brian Wilson was inspired to come up with Pet Sounds. Yeah, indeed. and. Well, that's not where that story ends. So Brian Wilson recorded Pet Sounds, and then uh, one member of the Beatles in particular was quite taken with it and inspired to go on to do something else. So Yeah, so so Pet Sounds didn't do well in America. And you can you can tell that from obviously the sales stuff that we've been through. A fellow who was part of the part of the Beach Boys band comes over to London and plays Pet Sounds to McCartney and Lennon. And McCartney is absolutely blown away by it by this con the concept of a well a concept album and from that he develops this idea that he wants to create a the Beatles own concept album around this kind of Edwardian Victoriana theme and also linking back to to their um, childhood in Liverpool as well so the idea of a concept album which hadn't really been done in pop before Wilson comes up with it McCartney listens to it and goes that's brilliant and the Beatles it's weird as well because Wilson had quit touring and recorded Pet Sounds and Sgt Pepper comes about after the Beatles quit touring and decide that they want to to create their sound in the studio so it again like there's these there's these links and and we've t- we've talked about we've talked about the beef between the two. The so on a subsequent Beatles album, uh, there was obviously back in the USSR, which is quite clearly a riposte to California Girls. That beach that Beach Boy sound like everything about it sounds like a Beach Boy song, but beautifully written to be on the other superpower side. I love Back in the USSR. I think it's a really clever, really wry song. That said, I love the Beach Boys too. I love the Beach Boys surf style. Uh, We'll come on to that in a bit. But um, I have another connection you've not mentioned. Okay. Uh, Drugs, uh, in particular LSD. Oh, yeah. And for Brian Wilson, boy, did did it have an impact on him going forward as well? Yeah, and I will very much touch on that. Okay. Pet Sounds was their 11th studio album. Now, considering that they had released their debut album, Surf and Safari, in 1962, their 11th album, Pet Sounds, was released on May the 16th, 1966 in the US and on June 27th in the UK. Like, fucking hell, 11 albums in four years. Fuck me, their dad worked in like bastards. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it was released in uh, in the US on Capitol Records, in the UK on EMI. So the studio sessions ran to a cost of $70,000. Adjusted for inflation, that is equivalent to $560,000 in 2021. 
which made it the most expensive album ever recorded. A record that it wouldn't hold for very long. Tune in next week to find out which album took that record. <laughs> I mean, like, if you're just if you having a rivalry over who can blow the biggest budget. It's a rivalry of excess, exactly. <laughs> it was recorded between January and April 1966 at Western Studios and Gold Star Studios in L.A. Now... Gold Star Studios is where Phil Spector created the famous Wall of Sound, which we've talked about right back to our very first clash. And Brian Wilson, basically, he described Pet Sounds as being an interpretation of the Wall of Sound. He said, if you take Pet Sounds as a collection of art pieces, each designed to stand alone, yet which belong together, you'll see what I was aiming at. It wasn't exactly a song concept album or lyrically a concept album. It was really a production concept album. Uh, And indeed, on those sessions at Gold Star Studios, many of the the orchestral arrangements were played by the famed Wrecking Crew, who basically played on most of the, the Phil Spector Wall of Sound records as well. Glenn Campbell also plays guitar on this album. And he had actually toured with the Beach Boys in the wake of Brian Wilson's decision to quit touring. That's a that's an interesting um, opening act. Glenn Campbell's crowd and the Beach, particularly the surf, the surfing sounds, Beach Boys having the same audience. But there, there you go. Okay. Anyway, back to Pet Sounds. So it was produced, arranged, and mostly composed by Brian Wilson, as Kev had said earlier. Uh, in collaboration with lyricist Tony Asher. So his previous experience was mostly in advertising jingles, interestingly enough. So I can see what Brian Wilson was thinking there because certainly the Beach Boys' early material, really catchy lyrics, really catchy choral lines, memorable songs. So who better to write catchy songs than someone who's written advertising jingles? Yeah, it's it's an interesting person to bring in but like i suppose if you're trying to do something very different having someone who can at least write a hook for you it's gonna help exactly so tony asher said of working with brian wilson in the liner notes to the pet sound sessions release in uh i think it was to commemorate the 40th anniversary or perhaps even the 50th anniversary of the album i'm sorry i didn't know that down he said it felt like we were writing an autobiography but oddly enough i wouldn't limit it to brian's autobiography We were working in a somewhat intimate relationship. I didn't know him at all. He was finding out who I was, and I was finding out who he was. So they came together in early 1966. As you mentioned earlier, Brian Wilson had decided to quit touring because of the the, the mental and physical strain of touring. So the rest of the band went on tour in Hawaii and Japan in early 66, and it was at that period where Wilson started collaborating with Tony Asher. And in fact, a lot of the orchestral sessions at um, Gold Studios with the Wrecking Crew were actually held during that period as well. So I mentioned drugs and LSD, and, and as Kev said, it had quite a profound effect on Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson suffers from a condition, well, I think it's been commonly referred to as bipolar disorder. I think Brian Wilson refers to it as schizoaffective disorder, and he puts that down to his experiments with psychotropic drugs. So there is an incredibly powerful interview that he gave to Ability magazine back in 2006, where he says, 
for the past 40 years, I've had auditory hallucinations in my head all day, every day, and I can't get them out. Every few minutes, the voices say something derogatory to me, but I have to be strong enough to say to them, hey, would you quit stalking me? Fuck off. On how the condition started, he goes on to say, and you right from the start, something was wrong. I'd taken some psychedelic drugs, and then about a week later, I started hearing voices, and they've never stopped. I mean, you don't need the Grange Hill kids saying, just say no. Just uh, just read that, and you're thinking, I ain't ever fucking taken acid. No, I mean, like, he is... Uh, I mean, in the history of, of music, there are, you know, you think of Sid Barrett from Pink Floyd, who obviously the the massive detrimental impact that had on him and he became a recluse and, and everything like that. Like any sort of interview with Brian Wilson, you can see how how much it, it affected him. I mean, what, what I will also say, and this is not a defense of, of acid or or anything like that, is that he was also he was taking other things at this time, which clearly didn't agree with him because if you take Pet Sounds as, as an album, like he's he's not in a happy place here. Yeah, indeed. And I I wonder how much of that drug taking was to do with the physical and mental burnout he was feeling from being on tour. And as well, we've already said they've released 11 albums in four years. They've been touring for much of that time as well. That's going to take its toll on someone. And his dad was a massive brick to him as well. He expected him to continue to churn out the hits, um, as did other members of the band, including the massive prick we've already referred to. You know, the, there's all this pressure on the fella to keep the money train going. And, you know, it's not a surprise that he he delved into other things to deal with the pressure. Plus, it is that time in the 60s when people were experimenting and were taking acid. It's, we're not far away from the summer of love and everything. Okay, moving on. Sorry to, to bring us down that, that slightly um, more somber hole, but bringing us back. You talked about the links to, to Rubber Soul. As you said, it was one of the things that, that inspired Brian Wilson to, to write and record the album. He told the San Diego Union Tribune that uh, I wanted to do something different than Rubber Soul. I didn't want to do better. I was just inspired by it. Yeah, so I think I've, I've read, a, read a quote uh, saying he wanted to create music on the same level as the Beatles, but he was interested in his own sound, but in the same manner of how they'd created Rubber Soul. So there's a lot of talk of friction between the band during the recording of the album. It's effectively seen as a Brian Wilson solo album. And in fact, the first single from Pet Sounds, Caroline No, was released as a Brian Wilson solo song and not as a Beach Boys release. So Tony Asher, the songwriter, he stated that all those guys in the band, certainly Al Jardine and Dennis Wilson and Mike Love, they were constantly saying, what the fuck do these words mean? This isn't our kind of shit. Al Jardine, in an interview in 2000 with Goldmine, he basically said Mike Love struggled with the album, saying that Mike's a formula hound. If you can't hear a hook in it, he doesn't want to know about it. Mike Love denies all this. In an interview with Forker in 2015, he said, people like to say that I didn't like Pet Sounds album. That's a bunch of bullshit. I named it, I worked on it, and I presented it to Capitol Records. It's Capitol Records that didn't know what to do with it. Brian Wilson himself, he said that basically the conflicts were resolved with the band when his bandmates realised that it was a showcase for Brian Wilson, but it's still the Beach Boys. In other words, they gave in. 
they let me have my little stint. I, I suppose what you what you can say in terms of this album is that Wilson presents a fair accompli. He basically set, sets up the album, writes most of the music, the words and everything, and just says, can you come in and do your bits on it, and then we can call it a Beach Boys album. It is largely his creation. They just got to play on it. That is very true. Okay, that's plenty background, as we usually do. Let's talk a little bit about how each of us came to be introduced to to Pet Sounds. So, yeah, you go first, Kev. How did you first discover this album? So I first came across this album uh, when I was at college. So I was around 16, 17. And the Beach Boys, I was aware of them, but like they were never really a band that was played in our house. Like I, I recognized some of the some of the bigger hits and more of the more of the surfer stuff than than anything on Pet Sounds. And a, a lad that was a, was at my college um, kept going on about this album by the Beach Boys. I was like, "Well, I'll give it, I'll give it a listen because he keeps going on about. It. He's got all right taste, and I, it can't be that bad." Like he keeps telling me, it's like one of the best things I've never heard. And I lent the CD off him. And I was blown away by it because it was something that I certainly didn't really entirely expect when I when I first heard it because of what their their sound and their image really is portrayed in general, which is much more around that surfer sound. So so quite a bit earlier for me, my parents didn't introduce me to an awful lot, but what they did introduce me to was absolutely iconic, and this is one of those albums and one of those bands. So. The first gig I ever went to was a Beach Boys concert in Toronto in 1991. And I've checked this on setlist.com. It was August the 18th, 1991 in Toronto. Because I was like, did I dream this? No, it happened. I have a vivid memory at that gig. So I was 10. I was 10 years old. I have a vivid memory during that gig of Sloop John B being played. And I was like, okay, now this is great. So we got back from that holiday borrowed my dad's vinyl copy of Pet Sounds and I've loved the album ever since. So that's what, 30 years ago now. Love it. I mean, it's it's great when um when you're introduced to an album from an early age because it gives it gives an album such texture. There's there's all kinds of additional things that you bring to the album alongside its musicality as well. 100% agree and yes, I will be coming back to this theme next week. Okay, very good. As we usually do, before we start going through the tracks, artwork. An interesting album cover. So basically it shows the members of the Beach Boys feeding goats at San Diego Zoo. The cover photo was taken on February the 10th, 1966 by George German. There is actually some video footage from that photo shoot on YouTube, uh, which was only rediscovered in February of this year. So again, I'll, I'll, I'll tweet the link out to that. But it's only very short, only a minute or so, but it's, uh, it's, it's worth a watch anyway. Now, in that interview with the San Diego Union Tribune I talked about a few minutes ago, Brian Wilson claimed that the band had been subsequently banned from San Diego Zoo because they had been accused of mishandling the animals what the fucking hell were they doing to those goats? <laughs> you don't know where they were putting the apples. <laughs> so aside from those facts, I don't have anything to say about the album cover. As I said, it's fairly unremarkable. It's un- it's, it is unmistakable now, considering how famous the album is, but it's a fairly unremarkable image. 
yeah, it's it's iconic in just that it's well known. Like there's there's good font game on the front. I'm enjoying the typeface there. But yeah, in terms of in terms of the actual image, it's because the album is so legendary that the cover is legendary. It's it's very different from what we'll talk about next week. Absolutely. So Shall we start going through the tracks on Pet Sounds? I think we should, otherwise we will try the already frayed patience of our listeners even more. (laughs) Those few we have left, yeah. Okay, so the album starts with Wouldn't It Be Nice? It was released as the third single from the album in July 1966. Basically a double A side with God Only Knows. I mean... That is a hell of a double A side. Let's just say that. Yeah, you'd be fairly happy with that as a double A. It reached number eight on the US Billboard chart, and it was certified gold in the UK. In the uh, the album notes for the Pet Sound Sessions I referred to earlier, Brian Wilson said, it expresses the frustrations of youth, what you can't have, what you really want, and you have to wait for it. Was it about that, Brian? I mean, yes, it certainly is about like the innocence of being too young to get married. But wasn't it about your your sister-in-law? Wasn't it really? <laughs> Allegedly, we have to say that the song was inspired by his infatuation with his sister-in-law, his wife's sister, Diane Ravel from the band uh, The Honeys, not the uh, mid-90 Honeys uh, ending with a Z. <laughs> Yeah. Wasn't she like 18 at the time or something? Yeah, she was. I mean, it's not great because it's his wife's sister. But she, I mean, he, like Brian Wilson's what, 21, 22 at this, at this stage anyway? I think he was 25. But he's early mid-20s. So it's not as if he's, well, <laughs> Joe Lee Lewis. <laughs> Say again. Or Elvis for that matter. Uh, yeah, okay. Whatever it's about, I fucking love this song. I think it's gorgeous. Right from the off, you can tell that he's going for a wall of sound type production. You've got that dreamy guitar intro. You've got drum kicks in. It's just wonderful. Glorious, brilliantly layered, hearing the the huge development in their sound. And one of the the things that I do when, when we do Album Clash is I'll listen to it through speakers and I'll also listen to it in with headphones. So that way you get sort of the appreciation of the of the sound as as you were intended to listen to it through speakers. And also you get to hear the complexity of it. And very much on this and other songs on this album, you hear that depth of sound, the complexity, like how much goes into this. I mean, he fucking throws the lot at it. And this is the first song on the album. If you're a Beach Boys fan and you're hearing this for the first time in 66, you've just been absolutely clobbered around the head with this song because it's huge. It's Mm -hmm. fucking massive. It is massive. It is, yes, very different for the Beach Boys, but it is still unmistakably Beach Boys with the vocal harmonies. I, I just love it. I just, it's fucking brilliant. What a song. As we talked about on a previous clash, in fact, their vocal harmonies are so they're essentially their their identifier. Any kind of any kind of song with that kind of with those harmonies on them, you know it's a Beach Boy song. You could throw like Slayer underneath it. And if you still had those harmonies, you go, the Beach Boys are on this. <laughs> Someone called Chuck D and the Bomb Squad, because that is a mashup I want to hear. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, on to You Still Believe in Me. This apparently is the first song that Brian Wilson and Tony Asher wrote together. It was originally called In My Childhood with very different lyrics. Uh, so that and it had been written by Brian Wilson alone, but he asked Tony Asher to help him rewrite it. It's very introspective, this one. It seems to be about a protagonist who is irresponsible and faithful and who is amazed by the unwavering loyalty of his lover. The intro to this song is quite distinctive. It was apparently created by plucking the strings in the back of a piano with a hairpin. I like this. Yeah, it's it, it, again, it has the beautiful harmonies which balance really effectively with the darkness of the subject matter. Like from what's quite a bouncy up opening that you've gone into something that's like a little more, a little darker. And also notably the use of a harpsichord. You don't have harpsichord thrown into pop songs very often. You don't, uh, but you do on these two albums. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. People throw in a lot at these albums. Yeah. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautifully done. it it shows it shows the craft in this album, the sound quality, the depth, the writing that it's beautifully tragic. Yeah. Oh, again, that's such a great way to describe it. Beautifully tragic it, it is right, and as you said, it's a very much darker sound than wouldn't it be nice? But it still has that specterish wall of sound quality to it. I like this album a lot, and I'm not going to be able to hide it very much as we go through. So get out your Album Clash bingo cards. I am having a lovely old time so far. I mean, and to be fair, that's usually me that comes out with that. So, you know, an, an unusual one for, for Album Clash bingo is that Tim has Tim is having a lovely old time at this point. Well, yeah, you know, we need, we need to mix it up a little bit. <laughs> okay, that's not me. Lead vocals by Mike Love on this one. It is the only song on the album where the majority of the instrumental arrangement is played by the Beach Boys themselves. And to me, it sounds much more like a conventional rock and roll song, much more Beach Boys sounding. But again, with the amount of reverb and the massive amount of percussion in there, you can still hear the Spectre influence. This, All I want to say about this is this song sounds like it wants to really get going but it never quite manages it. It's very start-stop. I like it, but I think... I don't know if there was something left on the studio floor. That's all. I can I can see where, where you're coming from with that. Yeah, it's it's not it's not my favourite song on the album. What I will say is that... And I, I've, I've got notes on other songs later on in the album. I can understand at this point why traditional Beach Boys fans found this album really difficult because this is the most traditional Beach Boys sounding song, but it doesn't really. It's it's them. It's clearly them, but not them. It's not a little do scoop. Yeah, it, your third song in the album, which that's supposed to sound most like what you're used to, and it's it's unsettling if you're expecting it to be a little do scoop or surfing USA. That you're not getting that, and you, you've already been sort of kicked on your ass by you still believing me. That's very well put. I can't add anything else to that. I think you're absolutely right. It's like the prodigy going away and coming back with a Damien Rice album. <laughs> very good. <laughs> All right. Don't talk. Put your head on my shoulder. This is one of three songs on which Brian Wilson is the only beach boy who performs. 
So he has described this as one of the sweetest songs he's ever sung. It is about non-verbal communication between lovers. Tony Asher quoted saying, it's strange to sit down and write a song about not talking, but we managed to do it and it came off well. God, this is beautiful. The chorus, the, the lyrics in the chorus, don't talk, put your head on my shoulder, come close, close your eyes and be still. Don't talk, take my hand, let me hear your heartbeat. Gorgeous. Yeah, it's utterly beautiful. Uh, I mean, the performance is magnificent. The strings are lush. And the as you say, like the way it describes that kind of nonverbal communication between lovers is, is so well observed and so beautifully done. It, it's a gorgeous piece of work. Uh, and it's quite sad. It's quite sad in not just the song itself, but in the this is not one of their songs that is lauded. It staggers me that this isn't a more well-known piece of work. I agree. Because it is It is just beautiful. It, yeah, it is. It, arresting is the word I've used to describe this. Yeah, that's a lovely way to describe it. Uh, thank you. It, it makes me want to curl up on the sofa with my wife in the half-light and listen to the sound of, well, the sound of silence, to, to quote another song by um, not the Beach Boys. <laughs> Again, the orchestral arrangement, it gives it a very cinematic feel. The string part, the timpani drums that come throughout it. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. I, I don't have any other words to describe it. This is, my heart is melting listening to this album. I, I don't have anything to add because we've both waxed lyrical about, about its beauty and we're really going to have to work on our synonyms uh, related to the word beautiful. Yeah, we are, aren't we? Um, incidentally, why doesn't the word synonym have any synonyms? <laughs> I, I I don't have I don't have a clever or uh, witty response to that. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna leave leave it hanging there. Okay, I'm waiting for the day. This was not Brian's favorite track. Um, so again, the line notes that are Pet Sound Sessions. He wrote, "That's the one cut off the album. I didn't really like that much, but you know, it's okay. It's not a case of liking it or not liking it. It was a very positive song." I just didn't like my voice on that particular song. This was originally copyrighted by Brian Wilson in 1964 as a solo composition. It's very clearly about wanting to comfort an unrequited love, perhaps uh, someone who is related to someone very close to you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So in the chorus, he hurt you then, but that's all gone. I guess I'm saying you're the only one. I'm waiting for the day when you can love again. I mean, even if it's not about your sister-in-law, it's a bit bold, Brian. She's literally just come out of a messy breakup. Just fucking hold your horses, fella. Come on. Not surprised Clap didn't like this album. Hey, so we haven't got Noel in yet, but I'm sure that's going to come next week. <laughs> oh, no. Noel's going to get a reference in this. <laughs> We have an obligation now to reference Eric Clapton and Noel Gallagher. Shoehorn them in however we can. Listen, we fucking managed to talk about Noel Gallagher when we're talking about Straight Eric Compton. So there is no album that we won't try and bring (laughs) in So, musically, we've just talked about the beauty of Don't Cry. The drum intro to this really snaps me out of it. Even with that, 
this is to me the most spectatastic song on an already spectatastic album. So yeah, it it is clearly influenced by the wall of sound, and you can hear the the breadth and the depth of the sounds throughout this. But I think what you've also got, you've also got to recognise is the beautiful vocal performance uh, by Wilson. Yeah, I've, I really I really like this one. As do I. As do I. Um, as well as Spectre in the sound, I can hear another influence within the verse. It's very Burt Bacharach. Hadn't, I hadn't really considered um, Burt Bacharach in terms of this song, but yes, I can, I can definitely see what see what you mean there. That the there is a a, a style a stylistic quality to it, and obviously Burt Bacharach at this time as well. He's massive. He's he's huge mm-hmm. at this time. Yeah. So yeah, he is. I, he is. you can you can see that Wilson is absorbing all the influences of everything that's going on going on at this time. So Spectre, Beatles, Bacharach, which are are all pop, but from very different angles. So you talked about the need to find different synonyms for beautiful. I'm going to use uh, perhaps not a synonym, but I find this song enrapturing. Nice. There you go. And I didn't even look on thesaurus.com for that one. In fact, I'm going to go further. I'm going to go noise. Come on. You can't say noise about a song on fucking pet sounds. I'm not listening to the streets for fuck's sake. No, it's like I've I've been watching Brooklyn Nine Nine again recently, so I can't help myself. Okay, let's go away for a while. Is is that what the audience have sent on their on the email? No, no, they've not said for a while. <laughs> Forever. So the next track is called "Let's Go Away for a While." It is an instrumental track, and it features amongst the orchestral arrangement twelve violins, a piano, four saxophones vibraphones and a coca-cola bottle used as a guitar slide so i mentioned burt bacharach on the last track brian wilson himself in the liner notes also said that burt bacharach had influenced the writing and the recording of this track and again for me you can absolutely tell he also, in an interview with Melody Maker in 1966, said that it was the finest piece of art he'd ever made and that every component worked perfectly. Apparently, Tony Asher had written some lyrics for this piece, but obviously they decided not to use them. Again, to me, it's really cinematic. Well, so cinematic, in fact, that Edgar Wright agrees with me. He used it on the soundtrack to Baby Driver. It just doesn't need lyrics. It just reminds you of that feeling of walking on air when you're in love, when you're in a new relationship, when your heart sings. It's captivating. That's the word I'll use this time. Captivating. I'm running out here. I'm going to, again, sort of reference previous Beach Boy fans, Beach Boys fans, sorry, and say that... Oh, fuck them. No, no, but like, again, I think this explains why it, why the album doesn't do what it should do. The coming to this instrumental song again, it's it's fantastic. It is so fantastically done, but I can see why they thought this was the Beach Boys' weird album because again, it doesn't fit in with that formulaic sound that they they had. And it's not it's not to criticize anyone for following a particular formula, but this doesn't this doesn't fit with what's gone before. And like you get to this, and it's 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 an instrumental. 
if you're if you're expecting what what's gone before an instrumental song that's throwing all this stuff at it, they're going what the what the actual fuck is going on? The first song I kind of got, then the third song went really weird and dark, and I thought that was going to be the thing that I was going to grab onto. I'm almost at the end of the end of the first side. I've got no fucking clue what's going on. <laughs> I can't disagree with it. Listen, having been a Radiohead fan who listened to Kid A for the first time in, was it 99, 2000? Whenever it was, and thought, what the fuck am I listening to? <laughs> now, let's be clear. I fucking love Kid A. I think it is one of their best albums. In 1999, eh, not so much. I get it completely. Yeah, the, the first time you heard you heard the national anthem, you, did, you went... What the fuck was that? Like, I was expecting um, a bit more of OK Computer. What? 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 It took you a while to, to get it. That's, like, I can perfectly understand why it didn't do commercially well initially, because it was just too left field for their audience. Very, very much so. But um, their audience was wrong. <laughs> yes, they were. And with that, I'm going to take us on to Sloop John B. Uh, it was a reworking of the traditional Caribbean folk song, The John B. Sales. It was released in March 1966 as a single. It reached number three in the US, number two in the UK. In the first two weeks of release, it sold over 500,000 copies and was certified gold. Sadly, it has become a staple of hundreds of derivative, unimaginative, badly sung football songs. And... Um, the uh, the club we support are partially responsible for that, <laughs> unfortunately. Yep. This arrangement was apparently Al Jardine's idea. Uh, apparently, Jardine was blown away by what Brian Wilson accomplished. However, Brian only included this song on the album to appease Capitol Records because they wanted a hit single to promote the album. We'll come on to which song he should have chosen later on. So this is often criticised for disrupting the flow of the album. And yes, it isn't a love song. So I can see why. Thematically, it doesn't fit. I love this. I've mentioned earlier that I have a vivid memory of being 10 years old and hearing this song played at my first ever gig. And this has stuck with me ever since. I fucking adore everything about this arrangement. Right from the start, you've got the arpeggio guitar part with the xylophone kicking in the strings. You've got the vocal harmonies. Oh, I love it. I love it. Sorry, Brian, you're wrong. This is great. No, no, there's there's no there's no apology required. It is so my again uh, verbatim notes. Fantastic song, although doesn't fit with the rest of the album thematically, but I feel that it does musically. It's it's brilliant. It's it's a it's just it's a fantastic it's a fantastic song. Have we written the same note? Okay, okay. I don't agree that this is out of place. Thematically, it may not quite fit, but musically, every single <laughs> element works well together and works with the rest of the album. <laughs> that is ridiculous. Hive mind. <laughs> exactly. Hive mind. It's great. It's great. I love it. Yeah, nothing more to add. It's it's brilliant. Okay, that ends side one. We go on to side two, which starts with God Only Knows. Gorgeous. Yes, just wait. <laughs> the lyrics themselves, the very opening stanza of the song, 
starts basically with a flip when he says, I may not always love you, but as long as there are stars above you, you'll never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. Brian Wilson initially hated, apparently hated that opening line because it did sound so negative, but it was Tony Asher that convinced him. And he said, you know, how many songs start off with that line? I like the twist and I fought hard to start the song that way. Yeah, you said gorgeous. We all know that um, Tomorrow Never Knows from Revolver is the best piece of music ever put to record. So that's a given. And it is. I'm not going to take any argument on that. This is perfect. It's wonderful. It's lovely. It's lovely. It's beautiful. It's so well structured. The performance. I mean, everything about it. It's heartbreak, heartbreakingly... Uh, I don't have I don't have the right words for it. Every everything about it is absolutely perfect. There is nothing bad about this song. It is the second best song that the Beach Boys have done, and that's because they they have potentially created the greatest pop song um, ever made. And we I'm sure we will talk about that. We will talk about that song. I disagree. This is the best song the Beach Boys ever made. This is a perfect pop song in itself. It is wonderful. Oh, no. This is a perfect pop song. The other song I'm talking about. But anyway, we, we will come to that when we come to that. But, I mean, this is, this is fucking amazing. It is fucking amazing. One thing to impress you even more, this song was apparently written in less than an hour. Fucking less than an hour. I could spend 10 years... And I could never come up with something that's remotely on this scale. Less than an hour. Phenomenal. How many songs were you here about? We wrote we wrote the lyrics in about 10 minutes. Like, it took us about an hour to, to record it. Mm-hmm. When it's right, it's right. And fuck me, this, this is right. Everything about it is absolutely perfectly pitched. It, it tears at your heartstrings. It makes you sing with joy. It... Everything, everything about it. Yeah. And with that, I suggest we move on to the next song. I think so, yeah. We can't we, we can't just rhapsodize about it, even though it deserves it. I know there's an answer, which originally was called Hang On To Your Ego. Uh, and that is because it is inspired by Brian Wilson's experience with taking LSD. Of the song, you said I'd taken a few drugs and I'd gotten into that sort of thing. I guess it just came up naturally. So uh, Brian Wilson apparently was introduced to acid by songwriter Lauren Schwartz. And he said of that first experience with acid that Brian Wilson had experienced a full on ego death. It was a beautiful thing. Hence the inspiration for the song. Now, ego death and acid is something we're going to talk about next week. (laughs) Yeah, we will certainly cover it in next week's Clash. However, this song has had the balls taken out of it due to a certain person we've already referred to. Would that person be the person who also leads the uh, vocals on this track? Would indeed. So Mike Love objected to the drug references and demanded, he demanded it was changed because he didn't like that sort of thing. He didn't think they should be singing about that sort of thing. Prick. So we've been very, very harsh on Mike Love this week, but there's there's a lot of evidence that suggests Mike Love was one of the people who were 
driving the band to be so prolific and to be the hit factory. So, uh, yeah, fuck you, Mike Love. <laughs> what I will say, not necessarily in defence of Mike Love, but I'll say that my opinion is definitely, definitely influenced by watching the Good Vibrations movie. He comes across as an absolute colossal prick, which is based on Brian Wilson's autobiography. So I'm not going to lie that that and also he has additional credits on this album that some people don't necessarily feel that he should he should have had. So I have been very much influenced by by the, by those things. I really like this, despite the changes to it that were, let's say, agreed upon. I get some distinctly Righteous Brothers overtones from this song. I, I like it. So so I really like it as well. I, what I also enjoy is the complexity of it. It's not a dead simple 4x4 four four song. The, the, this is part of the development of the sound of pop music. It has complexity to it, but it works really well, and I, I do like it. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on. And I, I can't think of anything else to say, so I won't try. Let's go on to here today, then. The protagonist in this song seems to be warning the, the listener or the, the antagonist that the honeymoon period of a, of a new romance will never last. The narrator is the ex-lover, and he speaks from his own bitter experience, where he says, well, you know, I hate to be a downer, but I'm the guy she left before you found her. Again, what, what I will highlight is the... As with other songs on the on this album, the vast majority of songs on this album is that it's so musically ambitious. There's so much again. There's so much depth. There's so much complexity. There's so much going on there that even if you don't particularly like the song, and I do, I do like the song. It is amazing, and it is regularly credited as one of his most ambitious arrangements. It's it's a it's a phenomenal piece of work, mm. and. You have to respect the craft of it. It's a fantastic, fantastic piece of work. And just expanding the, the horizons of what is possible on, on of a song. And we can only be grateful that Brian Wilson pushed, pushed the envelope. I mean, Paul McCartney can certainly be grateful for that. <laughs> no, you, you're right. This changed album craft. And I don't think there's a single track yet that we've talked about where you'd say, a bit humdrum, this. Everything's had something to offer. Everything's had something interesting to talk about. And um, here today is no exception. Yeah, I think this is a this is something that we can sort of talk about with, with both of the albums on The Clash, that if you think about what comes, what comes after, after Pet Towns and Sgt. Peppers, you've got stuff like Disraeli Gears, you've got uh, the first Zeppelin album, you've got... People feel the confidence to be able to go out and do something different and yeah. to really embrace al- album craft, as you say. Without either of the two albums on this week's Clash, there's no Dark Side of the Moon. So many so many classic albums that we've talked about wouldn't exist without this. Quite so. Let's come back to the album. Let's Let's go through the last few songs. Okay, I just wasn't made for these times. Now, from the title of the track, uh, you can read everything into the subject matter. It's about alienation. It's about struggling to fit in with society. So Brian Wilson himself, again, from the Pet Sound Sessions album liner notes, he says it's about a guy who's crying because he thought he was too advanced and that he'd eventually have to leave people behind. All my friends thought I was crazy to do Pet Sounds. That 
last line of that quote says everything you need to know about what this song is about. This is as autobiographical as Brian Wilson gets. Yeah, this this song is quite clearly saying, I've developed to this point. None of you are with me. None of you get what I'm trying to do here. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. I think more so than anything else on this album, and I'm not meaning to do down what they've done before because they're great pop songs. They're great catchy songs that you can think of and they they make you smile on that. But they're, they're lightweight. And really, this has a huge contrast with that upbeat, lightweight nature of the earlier work that they've done because this has such depth to it. It has such pathos. You are absolutely right. It is Another beautiful piece of music. I can't think of another synonym. Visionary genius, words that are banded about a lot. All of them apply to, to Brian Wilson. Again, we're, we're blending between the two albums, but you talked about exactly what the song's about. It's about, I need someone that gets what I'm trying to achieve. That someone was Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney absolutely <laughs> got it. No, he did though. It's not, it, he absolutely did. No, like, like I am laughing, but McCartney definitely got the idea. He knew, he knew what was going on. Unfortunately for Brian Wilson, nobody. Well, that's un, that's unfair. The, the the band didn't quite get where he was going, and then the the subsequent smile sessions, they very much did not get what the fuck was going on there. Although Brian wasn't well. Okay. Um... We're nearly at the end of us speaking uh, in rapturous terms about about these songs, so bear with us. <laughs> we need to do more albums that we think are shit, Kev, because <laughs> people people are sick of us coming up with adjectives for things that we like. <laughs> yeah, we need to really properly tear into them. All right, Pet Sounds. Uh, so it's another instrumental track. It was given the working title "Run James Run," and the band had apparently considered submitting it to be included on a James Bond film. Well, I've said cinematic a couple of times today already, and uh, very clearly that's what they were thinking here because it sounds very cinematic to me. It's got a very John Barry-esque quality. You can you can hear the James Bond influence, although I would say it's perhaps a bit too rumba to be a James Bond theme. So I can see I can see the cinematic nature of it, but I could like. I'm sorry. It sounds fuck all like a Bond theme tune. I'm so, I, it's it is very much not a Bond theme tune. That personally, I like it. It's grand, but nah, nah. I'm not having it as a Bond as a Bond tune. So I mean, okay. Admittedly, this song didn't exist in in 1966, but it sounds a lot more like a Bond theme than fucking Dying of the Day does. <laughs> I don't disagree with you there. So. Um, just for, for the listener's benefit, like if you ever get a chance to listen to the abandoned Radiohead song, Spectre, they made for the Bond film of the same name, it's a fucking phenomenal Bond theme tune. And they thought it was a bit too downbeat, so they, they rejected it. And it's absolutely amazing. Like, go and, li- like, go and listen to it, because it's brilliant. It is brilliant. And the first track, and I forget the name of it now, the first track from... Muse's album, The Second Law, was written to be a Bond theme. Was it Supremacy? Yes, thank you. It was Supremacy. Well done. So you can tell from the chord progression that it was written to be a Bond theme. It's fucking great. It would have been a great Bond theme. Do you know what? I'd 
I'd I'd love to hear a, an album of rejected Bond themes because at least two like at least two that we've we've highlighted are really good. That is an excellent idea. And um I'm sure Eon would love to make a load of money off that, to be honest. <laughs> These are songs we deem not good enough, and you're gonna pay loads of money to listen to them. <laughs> or probably Amazon quite soon. Yes, indeed. Although uh surely Hank Scorpio wouldn't like that sort of song being released in the charts. <laughs> Scorpio. <laughs> Jeff Bezos wishes he was fucking Hank Scorpio. We all wish we were Hank Scorpio. Of course we do. <laughs> All right, you don't think this sounds like a Bond theme. I can see why they considered it. I like it. I think there's some great percussion. There's some really good bongos on here for starters. I like Pet Sounds. It's it's not my favourite track on the album, but it's good. So let's move on. And we move on to the final track, which is Caroline No. So I mentioned earlier that this was the, the lead single, not as a Beach Boys single, but as a Brian Wilson solo release in March of 1966. It reached number 32 on the Billboard chart. Brian Wilson said this is his favourite song on the album. Uh, he said it just absolutely blew my mind away. It's a pretty love song about how this guy and this girl lost it and there's no way to get it back. It has been suggested that it's about his relationship with his then wife, Marilyn Rutherford. Brown Wilson himself disputes that. Oh, So if you compare this to the way the album starts with the hopefulness, the joyfulness of wouldn't it be nice? This is the antithesis to that. It's the completion of a journey. The love affair is over. Oh God, this, this makes me emotional. This song, it's so sorrowful. It's so mournful. It's, um, God, it's beautiful. <laughs> said it again. I love it. What a way to end an album. It's such a brave choice to end an album on such a low-key and melancholic sound. It's a great song. So you start your album with that huge drum, and then you go you go into um, Wouldn't It Be Nice? And then you end it with this, is that you, you've pretty much ended it on a downer. Mm. And I think when we talk about ne- next week's album, the way that one ends very much influences how that one's viewed as opposed to this one. Yes. And it's it's very important in how you how you view an album in how it ends because that's a, that's your lasting memory of it. So whatever good happened in the middle that you might have liked, that's gone by the time even though it's not a particularly long album. Noel Gallagher, take note. There you go. <laughs> Customary reference. It does like influence how you how you view this album, and it the fact that it's it's considered quite a not depressing but down key album is probably down to the fact that at the end you you do hit this low point. That's a really that's a really good point. <laughs> the only other thing I'll say is that train at the end. That's a bit mad, isn't it? <laughs> And no one knows why. Like the, nobody, nobody quite understands why the train's thrown in at the end. <laughs> I think it's a great way to end the album because it completes the story, and the story of a of a love affair like this is 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 very rarely happy in terms of the way it ends. And for me, this album ends the only way it can, the only way it should. I love it. Okay, so. Legacy. So we've done all the sales and awards and stuff. So we'll send this down a bit. First thing I want to say about the legacy 
isn't really about the legacy. It's about the album itself. And this is another connection between our two albums, actually, is that the most well-known song from these sessions is not on the album. And we talked about it earlier. We've, and we've even skirted around it. It's Good Vibrations was recorded initially from these sessions and it does not make the album. Criminally as well. Um, So yes, I believe it to be possibly the finest pop song ever made. It has three movements to it. It has a level of complexity that I don't think any pop song of of its era or subsequently has has ever reached really. And it is a phenomenal piece of work. It is a phenomenal piece of work. I'm not sure I agree with you on your statement that no pop song since has ever reached. I think there's a song, well, Day in the Life is similarly ambitious and similarly complex. I think you can say that Bohemian Rhapsody similarly is complex, although I would argue if it hadn't been for Good Vibrations, Bohemian Rhapsody wouldn't exist. So that's a a very fair argument. Um, I said earlier, I think that God only knows is perhaps the perfect pop song. This is, if not its equal, it's very close second. Good vibrations. We're talking about a song that isn't even on this album, but it's so famous. It's fucking, it's a wonderful track. It is. It's wonderful. We are arguing over which brilliant pop song is the slightly more brilliant one. <laughs> if, if all you can say about Brian Wilson is that he created God Only Knows and Good Vibrations... I mean, fuck me, that in itself is a legacy that you would want. Yeah, that's a very, very, very fair point. I want to come in to talk about why it wasn't on the album. Everyone in the band wanted to include it on the album, apart from Brian Wilson, and he didn't think it was finished, so he held it back. So it was eventually finished in September of uh, 1966 and released as a single. It was huge globally. It's their biggest selling single. It reached number one in both the US and the UK. It was certified gold in the UK, platinum in the US. Perhaps if he'd put it on the fucking album, I'd have won the top trumps round earlier on, Brian. (laughs) Um, Ah. Now, I have a 78 of Good Vibrations, and it has what's referred to as an early take of Good Vibrations on there. Now, I, I don't know when that early take was from, but I speculate it's from the Pet Sound sessions, and it isn't anywhere near as good as the finished version. I will say that. So if that's where Brian Wilson was at the time that Pet Sounds was released, then it was the right decision to hold it back because it would not have become as successful and as famous as it did it might have been a case that it wasn't ready and he he was he was correct or it could be a case of that that thing sometimes where a piece of art needs to be taken away from from the artist it just needs releasing at that point that there's only so many director's cuts that you can make of make of it if you if you like that analogy yes ridley scott <laughs> uh no yeah, yeah absolutely right okay so uh we've talked about it Commercially, it wasn't uh, anywhere near as successful as their previous album. So it debuted on the US album chart at 106. And considering that every album since Surf and Safari had debuted at number one, 106 is unbelievable. Capital just didn't get it. They did not get behind this album. And the the fact that they released a best of 
a couple of months later because they had so little confidence in it. It it shows they just had no idea how to market this because they had the Beach Boys in this box and this is what this is how we package them. This is how we sell them to the American public and the wider world. Mm -hmm. This album of melancholy of of heartbreak of tragedy they just didn't have a fucking clue and they they clearly didn't push it properly and the DJs who did hear it in America just said yeah their new album's weird yeah shall we go on to the reviews yeah I think we should okay so as you've said the initial reviews in the US were very lukewarm billboard quite abruptly said merely that it was an exciting, well-produced LP, which seems to be damning with faint praise, if you know what I mean. (laughs) In the UK, it was received far more positively. So Penny Valentine of Discs and Music Echo, she said it was 13 tracks of Brian Wilson Genius. I agree. Melody Maker, they ran an article uh, in which they'd asked several contemporary musicians to review it and provide their comments. Amongst those were Spencer Davis, who said, I haven't spent much time listening to the Beach Boys before, but I'm a fan now and just want to listen to this LP again and again. Is right, Spencer Davis, your sound. Our old friend Eric Clapton said that Brian Wilson was without doubt a pop genius. I mean, even a stop clock's right twice a day. So, you know, fair play, Eric. (laughs) Not, Not everyone liked it, though. Pete Townsend, in the days before the internet had invented the incognito page. Researching a book, Tim. (laughs) No comment. (laughs) Pete Townsend said that it was too remote and way out. It's written for a feminine audience. Fuck off. It's written for a feminine audience. What the fuck are you talking about, you absolute bellend? You know what he's talking about. You know exactly what what he means by that. Yeah, but that's the kind of swaggering, cocksure, rock. <sighs> There's a direct line from that quote to hair metal in the 80s. That's all That's all I'm saying. Yes, and that direct line is pretty much the who. <laughs> so after the initial Luke Wall reviews, and, and we, we sort of preceded this when we were doing the stats earlier, it's very much been reappraised subsequently. So in 1972, Rolling Stone Stephen Davis described it as an ex- an evolutionary compositional masterpiece that was the first rock record that can be considered a concept album. An intense linear personal vision of the vagaries of a love affair and the painful introverted anxieties of any love relationship. Despite my stumbling over that quote, I think it is perfectly put. Yeah, he's absolutely nailed it, to be fair to him. Anyway, shall we just cut to this chase? What did Nobby McGee think of the album? Yeah, let's let's find out. He's going to say something fucking ridiculous, I'm sure. Yes, yes and no. In short, he didn't say much. And that's primarily because he didn't, he doesn't appear to have been active as a critic until 1967. So don't worry, folks, we've got loads from him next week. So the only comment I can find from our good friend, Robert Criscow, on Pet Sounds was when he reviewed uh, when Brian Wilson eventually got round to releasing Smile in 2004. In his review of Smile, he said, never mind Pet Sounds, good record, but a totem. That leaves three great Beach Boys albums. Smiley Smile and Wild Honey get respect now, 
But in 1967, they peeved hardcore Pet Sounds fans who were waiting gape mouth for Smile. But Brian went bonkers, Mike Love got busy, and we ended up with only good vibrations and heroes and villains. Stopgap singles that made it onto the belittlingly titled Smiley Smile. <sighs> so, in 2004, our good friend Robert Criscow has decided to take it by himself to belittle Brian Wilson's mental health issues by saying that merely Brian went bonkers. Never change, Nobby. Never change. I mean, I wish he would because he's a massive prick, but he provides good content <laughs> for us. So, you know. Exactly. Okay, so Paul McCartney himself said that no one is educated musically until they've heard Pet Sounds. It is a very wanky term, and it harks back to something you said earlier in terms of what the album was before. The album was a, a vehicle to promote singles. Pet Sounds was the paradigm shift in popular music that made the album an artwork in itself, and that is often attributed to Sgt. Pepper's. I think it's something that that pet sounds to be acknowledged deserves to be acknowledged for. I think the only thing, because you're absolutely spot on there, I think the only thing that I could really add add to is that within the genre of pop music, I'm not aware of of a body of work up to this point that was so raw, so confessional about how how some like particularly a male performer as well about how they're they're in a in a turmoil and i think wilson being able to do that enabled and empowered other writers to expand their horizons and we are the we are the beneficiaries of that i agree entirely and i have i have nothing more to say Uh, and so i suggest we move on to best song worst song Okay, as you led us through it, what's your best song? What's your worst song? All right, I'm going to go best song first. And this will come as no surprise. It's God Only Knows. To me, this is one of the greatest songs ever put to record. If I were religious, I would use this song as proof that God exists. But I'm not, so I will instead use it as proof of the genius of people like Brian Wilson. God Only Knows is the best track on this album by a distance. My worst song, I struggle with this. It's my least favourite, but it's my least favourite by a distance. It's That's Not Me. I do like it. I do like it. I just can't help but think that it's holding something back in the way that it starts and stops and never really gets going. So, yeah, That's Not Me. It's um, my least favourite song on this album. What about you? Where have you come down on best song, worst song? So unfortunately for um, the the concept of clashing and having disagreements in terms in terms of the album, I cannot disagree with either of your choices. I said I said it earlier that I consider their second best song to be God Only Knows. Their best song, in my opinion, is is Good Vibrations, which isn't on the album. So it's fucking brilliant. And yes, as we were to- as we were talking through it, that's not me. It's not. It's not that it's a poor song. It's it's one of the weaker ones on on the album. It's a hard bar to leap over when you've got something like God Only Knows on there. And Sleep John B is a yeah, fucking exactly. brilliant song. And like we've talked, we've talked about it, and it doesn't even it doesn't even merit a discussion in the same pantheon as God Only Knows. That's how good God Only Knows is. Well, that's that's pretty much all I've got to say about uh, about pet sounds until we obviously come to the scoring next week. Um, anything else from you? 
No, I'm I'm completely uh, petted out. No heavy petting in the swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> but we will allow bombing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah for our american listeners um bombing is um like a where you leg it into a swimming pool and you kind of get yourself as tight together as you possibly can and cause a massive splash that's what it's called in the uk not that we're advocating bombing countries it's <laughs> it's a cannonball that's what the americans call it yeah okay uh right okay kev go on how can people keep in touch with the show? Go on. So if you want to keep in touch with the show, well, you may be a Twitter user and you want to see pictures of a health secretary uh, getting off with one of his employees. You may also want to check out our fine content at Clash Album. If you actually like quality content, thank you to my partner who provides the excellent images that we utilize on the Instagram. Uh, you can check that out at Clash Album. Or if you are resolutely old school, you may want to go to albumclash at gmail.com and send us a an old school email or sign us up for, uh, for some kind of weird website. That's up to you. Do you know what? You're absolutely right. Like, we've literally been giving away our email address for three months now. I mean, I, I have not had one email about penis enlargement. Come on, people, for fuck's sake, sign us up to all sorts of weird shit. We've not even been signed up to like J Date or like any kind of uh, weird fetish site. I'm slightly disappointed in our listeners. Very, very much so. All right, let's go. People are bored. We've been fucking three hours now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's been Album Clash. Thank you for listening. So next week, Kev will complete our first clash in our beef season by going through Sergeant Peppers. So go and give that a listen. Uh, until then, I have been Tim. I've been Kev. And we shall see you next time. Take care. Ta-ra. So, uh...